Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 1, verse 21. In the Gospel of Mark, we have the first exorcism, the removal of an unclean spirit, a demonic force, from inside of a person. Now, our passage today starts with, and they went to They went into Capernaum. Now, if you recall, last week, Jesus was moving from Jerusalem back to Galilee. And an official of the government came from Capernaum to Galilee, a 16-mile journey, to implore Jesus to heal his son. Well, some time has passed, and Jesus has gathered more disciples, and he has taught some more. And him and his disciples, when it says, and they, the they is him and his disciples. And he seems to have a full complement of 12 at this point. And so they walk the five and a half hour walk from Galilee to Capernaum. And we don't know if they did it in one day or if he stopped along the way to help people out. Then it says, and immediately on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and he was teaching. Sabbath is Saturday. It is the seventh day of the week when God created the heavens and the earth. He rested on the seventh day and then when he gave the commands to Moses and the Jewish people at Sinai, he said on the seventh day, which is Saturday, which is called the Sabbath in the New Testament, you are to rest and you are not to do any work. And so on Saturday, the Jews would have their church service, as it were, and it's called a synagogue is where they met. Synagogue is a word that means gathering or assembly. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament, uh, God told Solomon, David's son, to build a temple and where to build it and how to build it and a temple for God, God from Sinai up to the building of the temple, was in the tabernacle, which is a movable tent. But when Solomon came to power in Israel, he was able to build a temple for God to dwell in, as it were, where the Ark of the Covenant would be and where all the implements of worship would be, where all the sacrifices would be done. And when Solomon built the temple, you had a central place for people to worship the one true and living God. And so people would come from all over Jerusalem, Galilee, the Jordan Valley to worship at the temple. Then the the Israelites sinned and God kicked them out of the land. The Babylonians came in, the Assyrians came in first and took the northern kingdom away. Then the Babylonians came in and took the southern kingdom away and knocked down Solomon's temple. And so you had these thousands of Jews in Babylon. They couldn't go to the temple and worship. All of them were 
uh, the only worship they've ever known was worship at the temple because it had been a long time since that had been built. And so they didn't know about a tabernacle. They didn't know about any other thing. So they invented what is called the synagogue. And it started in Babylon in people's homes. And people would get together and they would teach from the Bible and they would do uh, various rituals and they would do Passover together and they would do Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah and all that together as a group in somebody's house. And then when Ezra and Nehemiah came back and rebuilt the temple and the wall, the people who had done this synagogue thing in Babylon came back and they said, huh, we've got a temple again, but a lot of them lived far away from the temple, so they kept the synagogue idea going. And then... As, as the Jewish people grew, they had more and more synagogues and they began to build buildings for the sole purpose of being a synagogue. And so if you go around today, you can find uh, Temple Beth something or other is usually how the name starts. That is a synagogue that is where Jews will meet. Uh, when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., and the Jews were scattered around the world, they took the synagogue idea with them. And today there are synagogues everywhere. If you go to South Lake Tahoe, there's even a synagogue in the middle of the woods in South Lake Tahoe. So there are synagogues everywhere, and that is where the Jews meet today, because today there is no temple. And so the synagogue idea was well in force when Jesus was born on earth, and so he went with his people into the synagogue on a Saturday to worship and to teach. They were amazed, it says, that he taught with authority, not like the scribes. And when you, you, when you think about the idea of what does it mean to teach with authority, the Scribes back then, because there was a general feeling that the Bible was bigger than their thinking, that it was unable to be fully understood, that the Bible uh, being the Word of God was an enigma. It was a difficult thing to get their arms around, that the scribes on an average Saturday morning, you would come to the synagogue and they would have the women on one side and the men on the other because the men and women do not sit together in a synagogue. And someone would get up and they would read a passage from the scrolls and then either by uh, prearrangement or somebody who had something to say would get up and talk about the passage that had just been read. This was called freedom of the synagogue. They did honestly believe that People could bring a word from God, anybody could do that in a synagogue, and they try even today to be more organized and, and liturgical about their operations on Saturday morning, but there's still the opportunity for people to share. And so Jesus, you know, raised his hand or whatever, however they did it, and they allowed him to comment on the passage that was read. And he taught, and he didn't debate it. He didn't say that it's, you know, very difficult. A scribe would get up and start quoting 
different rabbis that were in town, different commentators that had had commented on it. Instead of saying the truth of the passage, instead of the word that we use today is exposit the, the, the passage, you get into it and you pull the meaning out of it. They didn't do that. They just debated about it and what it might mean. And there is writings about uh, that time, about how some synagogues would get into the habit of debating for two or more hours on a Saturday morning about a single word in a verse and what that word means and what it could mean and is this a copy error or should it be capitalized and all these things about a particular word, they would get caught up in the minutiae and you would leave the synagogue on Saturday morning more confused than when you went in because they weren't teaching anything. Jesus was different in that he taught what the scripture meant. He taught the truth about God. It doesn't say what things he taught here, but if we look at the whole of the gospels about what Jesus taught, he didn't mince words about who God is. He didn't mince words about what sin is. He convicted people of sin. He explained God's love and his justice and he did it without a question mark and he did it without scratching his head because if anybody knows about the love of God, it's Jesus. So he taught about it with conviction and this is the authority that people are confused about. He was actually giving them answers and that is something that they've never had before so they were astonished at his teaching. And then right in the middle of it, it says in verse 23, and immediately, there's a lot of immediately in this passage, Jesus is starting to teach about the truth of God and the truth of sin and the truth of forgiveness. A man stands up and at the top of his lungs says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so the miracle is he cast the demon out. But what is the demon saying? And what is the, how, why was the demon there? What is going on with a demon-possessed person in a synagogue? Uh, John MacArthur comments on demon possession and says, Demon possession is always present but usually hidden. And he and his group of commentators look at why this person was in the synagogue and why, you know, why did the people let a demon-possessed person in? Well, clearly it was hidden. Clearly he did not come in wearing a t-shirt saying, hi, I'm demon-possessed. He was hiding for some sort of reason, and if you think about the forces of darkness, the anti-God forces of demons, he was probably there to sow questions about God's love or questions about God, uh, chaos in their thinking, things to set them off balance, to just say things that cause people to go, hmm, Jesus' biggest conflict with the Pharisees of the day is the Pharisees had invented a religion of works. 
They believe that if you did the right things, if you followed the law and did things, physically did things the right way, that God would love you and forgive you. Jesus was, no, 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 you have to have faith in God and God will give you his righteousness through Jesus Christ. That is what God's plan has been from the beginning. But you think, how did the Pharisees get the works righteousness idea? How did they get so off track? And I wouldn't be surprised if in a synagogue that they went to, there was somebody who was following Satan's teachings who was tricking them and saying things to cause them to doubt God and to give false teaching. John MacArthur would say, every single false teaching that is out there has started with a demon. And I'm not saying that all false teachers are demon-possessed. Uh, about, talk about that in a moment. But the idea that this person was there brought by Satan's forces to destroy their proper religious thinking. And so Jesus is telling the truth about God. Jesus is proclaiming the truth about God. Jesus is saying things that have never been heard in this synagogue about God. And the demon inside the person can't take it anymore. The demon is standing in the presence of God incarnate. And you say, well, how did the demon know who Jesus was? Well, if you go back to the beginning, who created the demon? Jesus Christ created the demon. Jesus Christ is that person's being's creator. And when the demons rebelled, who did they rebel against? They rebelled against the lordship of Jesus Christ. So this person, this demon, knew exactly who was standing in front of him. And my guess is, he was really surprised. He had no idea that Jesus was coming. Uh, the demons do not have all knowledge. They are not omniscient about everything. And so for Jesus to sneak in at a virgin's birth and and grow up in a carpenter shop, he could stay under the radar of the demons that weren't paying attention, and then boom, he just shows up right in front of this guy, and this guy shrieks. He is, he's freaking out because the only reason in this demon's mind Jesus could come to earth or would come to earth was to punish the rebellion of the demons, and so he is saying, what have you to do with us? In other words, why are you here? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? Uh, believing it fully and correctly that Jesus could. Uh, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus tells the demon to be quiet and come out. And if you look through the Gospels and you say, who testified correctly about Jesus Christ more than anybody else, and it's the demons. The disciples didn't get it. The Pharisees didn't get it. But every time Jesus encountered a demon, the demon proclaimed 
that Jesus was the Son of God, the Holy One of God, that Jesus was God incarnate. And so you have spiritual forces here, and Jesus is involved in the spiritual battle. So the question we have is, what about demons? Uh, you, you, you go and grab ten people off the street and do a man on the street, and you ask ten different people, what do you know about demons and Satan? And you will get ten different answers. There is teaching all over the board. Some people in a church will teach that demons are, uh, you know, subdued and you don't have to worry about them, while other churches will, will preach that demons are here in the pews and we have to watch out for them. Some people think they're very active. Some people think they're not very active at all. And so there is great confusion in the Christian church about evil and demonic forces. Uh, it would take hours to do a full demonology study of what the Bible says about demons, but there are some high points that we can hit, and as Jesus encounters more demon-possessed people, we will uh, look at them more and more in depth. If you ask somebody about demons, they, some will say that it's only in the movies, it's only in TV. I remember when The Exorcist came out in 1973. That long ago, The Exorcist came out. My parents wouldn't let me watch it because it's evil, it's bad. We, won't, you know, we can't see that sort of thing. But now you have all sorts of evil and demon things in movies all the time. And people say, well, that's an invention of Hollywood, that there is no demonic forces in the world. While other people say, no, 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 demons are everywhere, and we got to watch out for it. So what are demons, and where did they come from? If you go back to the beginning of Genesis, the Bible starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it is believed that at that time, Jesus, uh, God, God through Jesus created the heavenly kingdom, created his throne room that was seen by Ezekiel and Isaiah and in the book of Revelation, the place where God is currently hanging out in heaven, was created with all of his servants and minions and angels. Angel means messenger. And so God had messengers. He had beings to share the work with. God does not need help. God did not create angels to help him. He created angels because he wants to share in the administration of heaven and in the universe. And that's why when we read through the New Testament, one of the things we are promised at the end of time is we will reign with Christ. We will share in the administration of how things are operating in eternity. I have no idea what form it'll take. I have no idea how it will take. But God likes to share. Jesus wants you to participate. And so angels were created to share in God's administration of the universe. Somewhere in the first five days 
of creation, Satan, who is called Lucifer, said, I don't like this. I don't want to share with God. I want to be God. I want to be the top dog in heaven. And so he rebelled and said, God, I don't like, I want to have a vote. I want to vote you out. And God says, we don't vote in heaven. And God kicked Satan out. And when Satan left, he took one third of the angels with him. And that's in Revelation 12, 4. It says he took one third. So we have no idea how many angels God started with. But the number of angels he created in Genesis 1-1 is the same number of angels that exist today. Angels do not have babies. Angels do not die of old age. So if he created 100, there's 100 today. If he created 5,000, there's 5,000 today. We don't know how many there are. But we know that the number is fixed. We also know that whatever number God created, a third of them rebelled. So he has, we'll say 900, because that's easy math. So 900 and 300 rebelled. That means if it's just a numbers game, good angels are 600, bad angels are 300, we would win that way. But God's on our side, we're on God's side, so God doesn't need the angels to fight, as it were. And so you have angels cast down to earth, and we call those bad angels, those rebellious angels, demons. They are spiritual beings, so they can appear as having a physical body, but they are spiritual. They, you can't see them for the most part. Demons cannot be everywhere. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Demons do not. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Demons are not. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Demons are not. Okay. Demons are not God's equal. We do not live in a eternal struggle between good and evil, and we don't know who's going to win. We live in a situation where there are rebellious, weak beings that are fighting God, and God is going to win. There is no question that good will win. And so what can a demon do to you? What can a demon do to this person? First of all, a demon can demonize you. That is the word that is used to describe a demon that affects you from the outside. Okay? A demon can poke you and pinch you and give you a bad day and things like that. These are all things outside of you. And that's called demonizing. You say, well, how bad can it be? Well, in the book of Job, where Satan is challenging God, and God is responding to Satan, Satan tells his minions to kill all of Job's children. And he did it two ways. First, Satan brought an army in to kill them. Okay, does Satan have an army? No, but Satan can influence an army. Satan can influence people to do evil and give them a good idea that they're going to invade. 
The second thing he did was he brought about such great wind that it knocked down the house and killed the people that was in it. And so in this way we see that Satan has a, a good deal of problem. He can physically hurt us. Okay? And so that is one thing that we, we call demonizing, oppressed by a demon. And there are Christians today who have gotten into occult practices to play with it, and they are being demonized today. They are allowing Satan to get at them from the outside. They aren't possessed like this person. They are being demonized. The second thing a demon can do to you is they can put thoughts in your head. People have studied how the brain works and how the different waves work. And just like I can pray for an answer from God, and God can give me an answer in my head, Satan can also put answers in my head. He can put thoughts in my head. Satan cannot read my mind. He doesn't know what I do with that thought. God can read my mind. God knows all my thoughts. Satan cannot. So you, you, you wake up one day and there's a random pretty bad thought about something that, you know, some revenge you need to take. Hey, maybe that's a demon putting a thought in your head and we can get rid of it. We, can, we don't have to spend any time thinking about those things. And so Satan can get at you from the outside, can physically impact you, and can put thoughts in your head. They can, Satan cannot make you think about these thoughts. They can just put random thoughts in your head and what you do with it is between you and God. And the third is possession. Satan can possess people. Now, the conservative Baptist view is that Satan cannot possess Christians. If you have the Holy Spirit, there's no room at the end for Satan to get in there. There's no, a demon cannot possess you when you have the Holy Spirit. Okay? There are people who would disagree. But the conservative Baptist view, of which we are, would say that no, Christians cannot be possessed by a demon. But this person was clearly being possessed by a demon, and demon possession is real. It happens today. I have met people when I was at San Jose State for my bachelor's in comparative religious studies. One of the teachers was a voodoo practitioner. And what a voodoo practitioner does is they invite demons to possess them. And they trade experiences for knowledge and, and all this type of stuff. And the way she described the uh, possession was while the demon was using her body, she was in a room reading a book or watching something educational. She always gained knowledge while the demon was using her body. Other people have said that they are like an observer from inside, that they can't control anything of their body, but they can see everything like a movie out through their eyes. You do not have control when a demon possesses you. And the truth from this passage is that whatever demon problem you're having, Jesus is better and bigger than that. Now, one thing about the fixed number of angels and demons back at the beginning, 
there's a fixed number, and we don't know what it is, but the number of people has been growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. So there's a possibility that there are now more people than there are demons in the world. I don't know. Probably the, the idea that there's, you know, 10 demons for every pe person, that's, you know, 80 billion demons. That's a lot. I don't think God made that much that you would have talk in Scripture. He made a court, you know, uh, we, a couple hundred, couple thousand. We do not know, but there are more people than demons. But it doesn't matter. It could be two people on earth, Adam and Eve, and God's still bigger than all the demons. Uh, my, my main point here is we don't fear the demons. We don't look for the demons. We don't look under the pews for demons. We don't look in our closet for demons. If they're going to come against you, our only response is the armor of God. Our only response is to stand against them, not to fight them, not to look for them, but to stand against them. Because the Bible is clear that he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, Satan. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to lose. Satan cannot take away your salvation, okay? He can make you think that you're not saved. I've had people tell me they have those thoughts, but he can't take away your salvation. And if you keep your mind and your heart in the things of God, if you keep your mind and your heart in the Word of God and praying through um, Ephesians and the, the armor of God and the defenses that we have, uh, you will be fine. Satan cannot do anything to you. If you feel like you're being physically attacked by Satan, you need to pray. You need to come to this church and have people pray for you. You need to pray the power of God to get rid of him and as every single demon-possessed person in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't have to do a ritual, he doesn't have to burn incense, he doesn't have to do anything except be quiet and get out. And of course the demon yelled, not very obedient demon, but the demon got out and went away. Jesus, Jesus has absolute absolute, total and absolute power over every force of evil in the world. Whether it be spiritual demonic or whether it be an evil person, whether it be whatever it is, Jesus has complete and absolute authority over that. In the Gospels, the demons understand it very early. They know Jesus from way back. So they understand very early. It's the people that have difficulty understanding that Jesus has absolute authority, that Jesus' word cannot be challenged, that Jesus, when he says, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. And that is why he who is in us, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, is infinitely greater than he who is in the world. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I just thank you for that. I just pray that we will be people who do not seek after fearful spiritual things, but we fill our minds and our hearts with things of you 
and truth and love and authority, knowing that everything that happens in this world goes through you first, that you are the absolute, true, and sovereign Lord of the universe. Lord, we praise you for that. And as your blessing on the remainder of the day, we ask all this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.